There was a deficit of, of women, and it was very, very cold there in the winter. Before Christmas vacation, I said to my dad, I said, Dad, I hate it here, and I want to transfer. I want to get the hell out of here because there's just nothing to do. That's Richard Press, a Jew from New Haven, Connecticut, who arrived in Hanover, New Hampshire, as a Dartmouth freshman in the fall of 1955. When he first got there, he took a dim view of the place, and he was not alone. And when we got to Dartmouth and actually saw it, I was terrified. Everywhere you look were mountains. And I found myself hiking in these dreadful mountains, surrounded by a fellow who every night would play these songs on a little harmonica and a little accordion. I was just in tears. What am I doing here? That's Stephen Geller, Dartmouth class of 1962. There were very few Jewish professors. There were no Jewish faculty members in theater. Can you imagine? Not to have one Jew in theater? <laughs> I mean, what? Are you serious? And of course, there was still the outdoors to deal with. Hiking, we did that as Jews 3,000 years earlier. We did that already. Thank you. In the desert, that was enough. We know better. Why am I doing this again? Not to mention that Dartmouth was still not the most welcoming place for Jewish students. Stephen Geller remembers asking one of his theater professors where all the Jews were. I asked, why is there a quota system that is doing what it does at Dartmouth? He said, what? Why, if we didn't have a quota system, Hanover would be swimming in Jews. I just cracked up because I just could imagine, you know, this enormous Noah-like flood in the Hanover Plain and Jews clinging to Baker Tower Library is suddenly swimming all over the place. So hearing all this about how inhospitable Dartmouth could be, it's hardly surprising that Richard Press nearly dropped out. But then his dad told him to embrace the Dartmouth cold. When my father said, look, don't be a jerk. You get free skiing lessons, get your skis, get the whole outfit, and learn how to ski. Well, that was my downfall. I took the ski lessons, and I used to arrange my classes so that I'd have afternoons free to get to the Dartmouth Ski Way. And I skied my way through Dartmouth College. If we look at Dartmouth College in the late 1950s, it could seem like a really oppressive place. Small town, very little culture, no women, Really homogeneous faculty, super white and super Anglo with very few Jews or Italians, let alone Hispanics or blacks. But look at it this way. If you wanted to get away from home and discover yourself, just be free and have fun for four years, what better place than this little school in the woods far from home? Even if home was only 50 or 100 miles away as the crow flies, it took six or eight hours to get there in those days. For four years, you were answerable to no one not to your demanding parents, not to the weighty memories of your Jewish ancestors. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Gatecrashers, the hidden history of Jews in the Ivy League. In the first two episodes, we heard about all the ways that the Ivy League could be inhospitable to Jews. But that's only half the story. 
Because when you talk to Jewish alumni of these Ivy League schools, places like Yale, Princeton, and Dartmouth, they usually will tell you that they loved their schools. They don't deny that there was anti-Semitism. In fact, they'll all tell you, yeah, there were quotas to keep us out. But the anti-Semitism somehow didn't matter that much. There was too much to love. In this episode, we ask how it is that every Jewish Dartmouth alum I talked to ended up loving the place, despite anti-Semitic fraternities, despite quotas, despite it being snowy in Hanover, New Hampshire from October to April. Every Jewish Dartmouth alumnus I talked to ended up loving the place. They didn't deny that it had problems, but they couldn't help but smile when they talked about their alma mater. It was the best of times and, well, it was the best of times. Welcome to Gatecrashers, episode three. Dartmouth and the Jews who loved it. To begin, let's get our history right. Dartmouth, like other Ivies, did have a rather interesting history with the Jews, to put it gently. It took a relatively long time for Dartmouth to develop a, quote, Jewish problem, as it was known. In the early 1920s, Dartmouth was still only 2% Jewish. But by 1930, Jews made up about 10% of the entering class. At first, Dartmouth President Ernest Martin Hopkins and his director of admissions, E. Gordon Bill, tried to control the problem by admitting fewer New Yorkers, a tactic we saw in episode one about Columbia. Just go hunting for students from parts of the country with fewer Jews, like the South and the West. This is, of course, where the idea of geographical diversity in admissions came from. However, this didn't work at Dartmouth because Jews from other parts of the country were applying in high numbers. In 1931, the entering class was believed to be about 11% Jewish, which some thought was an underestimation and which was still way too high. As at Columbia, it wasn't necessarily the students who were most upset, but the alumni. For example, in 1934, Ford Weldon, a member of the class of 1925, wrote to President Hopkins that, quote, The campus seems more Jewish each time I arrive in Hanover, and unfortunately, many of them, on quick judgment, seem to be the kike type. That's a terrible ethnic slur, which fortunately has gone out of vogue, but it's worth asking what Ford Weldon meant by the kike type. Presumably, he meant Jews who looked ethnic. This was a huge concern at the time. In 1932, President Hopkins had written to admissions director Gordon Bill that they were getting too many Jews of the wrong kind. The preponderance, Hopkins wrote, of those of strongly demonstrated physiognomy in the present freshman class is having a cumulative effect. In other words, there were too many Jewy-looking Jews. So around that time, Hopkins and Bill settled on a target of no more than 5% Jews in each freshman class. They started alumni interviewing committees to help vet the high school seniors who were applying. Some of the most enthusiastic members of these committees were, in fact, Jewish alumni who did not want the wrong kind of Jew to muck up their alma mater. In 1932, Gordon Bill explained to the Dartmouth Alumni Magazine that he was trying to get the best Jews he could. He wrote that one boy was admitted because he had, quote, such lovely light hair and blue eyes and was about six feet two in height. Oh, 
Gordon Bill, the admissions director, seems to me like a far worse guy than President Hopkins. Bill was super enthusiastic about keeping Jews out. And this was all happening in the early 1930s. And I'll go ahead and just say it. He really did sound like a Nazi. His boss, President Hopkins, seemed more typical for his era. He didn't despise Jews exactly, but he was probably uncomfortable mixing with them. President Hopkins was not an anti-Semite. That's David Shribman, a Jewish alumnus from the class of 1976 and a former Dartmouth trustee. He was more a reflection of his own time. Opposition to Jews at Dartmouth came less from President Hopkins than from prominent alumni who thought that the college was looking a little bit kikish when they would walk around. To be fair, Hopkins was running what historically had seen itself as a Christian college, one that in fact had been founded to teach Christian theology to Native Americans, and for many years existed primarily to educate Congregationalist ministers. And Hopkins thought of himself as benevolent toward his Jewish minority. He was not the only college president in the 1930s to make the argument that the quotas were as much for the benefit of the Jewish students as for the Gentiles. Because, you know, if it got too Jewish, that's when anti-Semitism would spike among the student body. A lot of Protestant administrators really believed this, that if their students were exposed to too many Jews, all together in the same place, they would start hating Jews. So to protect Jewish students, the administrators were obligated to limit the number of Jewish students. In fact, as we'll learn in a later episode, in 1922, Harvard's president, A. Lawrence Lowell, was quoted in the New York Times saying that quotas were necessary to tamp down anti-Semitism among Harvard undergraduates. Lowell said, If their number should become 40% of the student body, the race feeling would become intense. When, on the other hand, the number of Jews was small, the race antagonism was small also. If every college in the country would take a limited proportion of Jews, I suspect we should go a long way toward eliminating race feeling among the students, and, as these students passed out into the world, eliminating it in the community. In other words, Lowell was arguing that keeping Jewish numbers low at Harvard might help cure anti-Semitism in the world at large. And remember, in our last episode, we heard a similar rationale to defend quotas at Princeton's eating clubs, that Jews benefited from quotas because when their numbers got too big, that is when people started to hate them. Now, any anti-Semitism is bad, and it may sound like I'm making excuses for these men, but we have to understand these Protestants thought of themselves as good, tolerant, progressive men. They thought of themselves as cultured and well-bred. They saw themselves as benevolent toward the Jews. When Hopkins said the quotas were partly for the Jews' benefit, he meant it, and he saw no irony in saying so. But all this conversation was out of the earshot of students. On the ground, the Jews at Dartmouth knew about the quotas, but they weren't despairing. To the contrary, they were happy. For many, 
there was no place they'd rather be. I was preceded at Dartmouth by uh, two people, my father, class of 1947, who went after the war, and my uncle, class of 1941, who went for the war, that enlisted in the Navy, and he adored Dartmouth. And for him, the first-generation college student, son of immigrants, Dartmouth represented America. It represented a promise, an opportunity, fellowship, and inclusion. This is David Shribman, the trustee we heard from earlier. He's a Pulitzer-winning journalist who worked for the Wall Street Journal and the Boston Globe, and who recently retired as the editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I asked him about his family's history at Dartmouth, and he immediately told me about his uncle, Philip Alvin Shribman, Dartmouth class of 1941. He said that for Uncle Phil, whom he never had the chance to meet, Dartmouth was the American dream. He went off to war and was killed at Guadalcanal. Before he died, he wrote my father a long letter. And it was a letter from an older brother to a younger brother about what college meant. And he said that he thought that the values of Dartmouth and the values of college were the same values for which the United States was fighting in World War II. Now, when Shribman's uncle Phil entered Dartmouth in 1937, it was just under 10% Jewish. In some pretty serious ways, it was not Jew-friendly. But Uncle Phil adored it. So much so that his little brother Richard, David Shribman's father, followed him there in the class of 1947. And as you can hear from David, his dad loved Dartmouth as much as his uncle did. My father went to Dartmouth. He had this really remarkable affection for the place, I think as a safe harbor. Intuitively, he understood that this was a privilege to go to a place like this and that it offered opportunity. To hear Shribman tell it, Dartmouth was paradise. So I had to ask him, was it all good? Did his dad have any stories of anti-Semitism there? He was a member of Pi Lam, uh, which was a Jewish fraternity. And when I joined Kappa Kappa Kappa, he was astonished that Jews could belong. His life was circumscribed there, basically to Jewish students. Billy Jacobs, Alan Epstein, Alan Gassner, Norm Fink. Well, I mean, they all have one thing in common, right? Those were the people he hung around with. I have no idea how exclusionary college was. I think people of that generation accepted that there were certain barriers. He was not confrontational or didn't have any anger about that kind of thing. He never wanted to join a country club, uh, so it never occurred to him. Listen to what David Shribman said there. That generation accepted that there were certain barriers. After talking to these Dartmouth alumni, as well as Jewish alumni of all the Ivy League schools, I'll go one step further. I think that not only did the older generation accept that there were certain barriers, I would argue that these Dartmouth guys didn't really care. This is pretty contrary to how we see racist or ethnocentric slights today, what we now call microaggressions. In 2022, we take every bit of prejudice seriously. We understand how even small slights can sometimes be damaging. Today, we see how rough it is to be up against the glass ceiling, tapping away. But if you were a Jewish student in 1940 or 1950, first of all, you didn't expect to be fully welcomed by Gentile society. If you went off to the Ivy League, you were prepared to have some anti-Semitism thrown at you. But also, if you were a Jewish boy and you made it to the Ivy League, you were incredibly psyched. Your family had made it from the shtetl, from the pogroms, to Hanover, New Hampshire, or Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Princeton, New Jersey, in a matter of a few decades. 
you had achieved the greatest social mobility in the history of the world. Who cares if Trip Baxter III tells a stupid Jewish joke? You've made it. And I think this feeling was especially true at Dartmouth. Friends, if you like what you're hearing on Gatecrashers, you might also like another podcast that I host. Unorthodox is the universe's leading Jewish podcast, and each week, my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz, and I discuss the news of the Jews, and we interview two guests, one Jewish and one a Gentile of the week. We talk to fascinating people. Some of our guests have included comedian Judy Gold, Congresswoman Katie Porter, authors like A.J. Jacobs, Chuck Klosterman, and more. Guys, this show is a lot of fun. It's irreverent, but not silly, at least not most of the time, and it will always get you thinking. You can find Unorthodox, a Tablet Studios production, wherever you listen to podcasts. Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. More than a decade after World War II, Dartmouth still had relatively few Jewish students compared to some other Ivies. But also, it had very few Jewish professors. What all of this meant was that the kind of Jew who did go to Dartmouth to teach or to learn was likely to be someone who was really open to its vibe, who was into the outdoors or at least willing to get into the outdoors, like Richard Press, who suited up and learned to ski. It also stands to reason that a lot of the Jews who picked Dartmouth weren't particularly Jewish. Here's David Shribman again. The uh, culture of the college was not Jewish, the way the culture of Columbia and Tufts and Syracuse, American University and Muhlenberg might be said to have been in the recent past. It was outdoorsy, where Jews in America were urban, though they weren't urban in Europe. It was rambunctious, the college at that time, and even through my time, it was Republican, devoutly Republican, even in my time. And urban Jews were predominantly liberal, or at least from families that voted Democratic. That was not Dartmouth. In 1992, Alexandra Shepard, a Dartmouth undergraduate, wrote a senior essay on the history of Dartmouth Jews. In that paper, she argued, quote, Jews who applied to Dartmouth had to have the money to go to Dartmouth. And more importantly, they had to be willing to forego some or all of their Jewish identity. Above all, you had to relish the idea of leaving your Jewish enclave, the Lower East Side, Scarsdale, Dorchester, wherever, and going into the great unknown. It was self-selecting. The kind of people who wanted to go up into the woods, don't forget there was no Route 89 or 93 there, which are now within miles. Those didn't exist. It took eight hours to drive from Salem, Massachusetts, where my father was, to Hanover. You had to really want to go to that kind of place. My grandparents thought that this was Eden on Earth. My grandfather, who had come to America like so many of us, and, and people roll their eyes at these stories, but came to America with about 38 cents, saw that this magnificent uh, campus, which offered so much opportunity, was a symbol of America. And going to a place like that was a symbol of arrival in this new country, and that it was so far from you know, the shtetl and uh, so far from Hitler that it was truly heaven on earth. But wait a minute. Could American Jews really find heaven on earth in the woods? My wife, who is a third-generation Lower East Side of Manhattan native, always jokes that Jews don't camp. Now, 
Obviously, that is a stereotype, not reality. But it's a stereotype with some truth to it. There is even a song called Jews Don't Camp. Yeah, I had to tell him, Jews don't camp. And 50 or 75 years ago, it was even truer that Jews didn't camp because Jewish immigrants were, overwhelmingly, city dwellers. So that made Dartmouth, which is truly in the mountains, a really unlikely place for most Jewish boys. People back then were really frank about this question of Jews and outdoorsiness. In 1922, Ernest Hopkins, the Dartmouth president, wrote a letter in which he reflected on why the Jewish numbers at Dartmouth were so low at the time, 2 or 3% of the school, at a time when Columbia was struggling to get its Jewish percentage down to 20%. Hopkins wrote, The men of Jewish blood do not like the lack of certain urban characteristics which are wanting in the Dartmouth environment. And still less, in our experience, do they like the somewhat definite vogue in favor of the strenuous life physically. In other words, Hopkins was saying, Jews can't rough it. The 1924 catalog for prospective students even cautioned that Dartmouth was the wrong school for students who needed, quote, city excitements. Stephen Geller, who was from Los Angeles, had already been accepted to Carnegie Tech in Pittsburgh, it's now Carnegie Mellon, when his father got a notion. Two weeks after I got in, my dad handed me a letter and he said, here, you're going to apply to Dartmouth. And I said, what's Dartmouth? And he said, it's a school that a friend of mine went to. And he said he had gone there and it's an amazing school and it's an Ivy League school and it's a great education. And I said, but I'm already going to Carnegie Tech. So that's already set. Dad said, no, you're not. You're going to you're going to fill in this form. Geller agreed to fill out an application to Dartmouth, but he did not take the application seriously. So I said, okay, so in my math class, in pencil, I filled in the application. What religion are you? So one of the first questions, and I said, Anabaptist with a sous-son of Zen, because I'm from L.A. I mean, it was so snotty. They said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, obviously a bullfighter, but I'd rather fight in Mexico than in Spain, because the Mexicans are much better fighters. I mean, it was the snottiest, most outrageous, and in pencil, two weeks late, application form. And about a week later, in my house, arrives this gigantic envelope. Despite his best efforts, Geller had gotten into Dartmouth. He was bound for the woods. I was very surprised, and Dad said, hey, not only are you going to Dartmouth, but uh, Dartmouth, but also you are going to take part in the freshman hike. He said, you're going to hike in the Green Mountains for a week. I'm not a hiker. I play bongos and timbales in an Afro-Cuban band on the Strip. That's my life. That's what I love. I don't love hiking. I don't want to hike. You know, I mean, hiking in mountains, I don't even, I don't have shoes or boots. I'm going to outfit you. But pretty soon, Geller had fallen in love. Dartmouth turned out to be the perfect place to hone his craft. Theater. They let me do things. I wanted to do my plays, and they wouldn't let them a freshman year. And I went to say, can I use your theater? And they said, of course not. So I went to the Quaker Church, and I said, you have a theater downstairs. Can I use your theater? And they said, anytime you want. Great. Well, I got a call back from, again, my mentor, who said, what are you doing in the Quaker Church? Well, I want a theater. You wouldn't give it to me. I'm, I write plays. Well, you can do them here. But you said no. 
well, we'll give you uh, once a year, you can have the theater and put your plays on. Well, they actually, it turned out to be twice a year and make movies, which they paid for. They gave me incredible opportunities in that regard. And I absolutely loved it. I loved the fact that theater was so unimportant that those who were interested in it were given everything. And Dartmouth was brilliant in that regard. Was there anti-Semitism on the Dartmouth campus? A little bit, here and there. Sometimes it was more a matter of misunderstanding than outright bigotry. Here's David Shribman again. The college from time to time tried to make efforts to show that it was congenial to students. And in my senior year, I had Passover, they thoughtfully produced bagels for the students. Now, we all laughed our heads off. Just to clarify, Passover is a week-long holiday during which Jews avoid bread and bread products. So serving bagels during Passover misses the mark. But Shribman didn't think for one second to complain to anyone or even to take umbrage. This was a different time, and people were expected to swallow a certain amount of ignorance. And something about Dartmouth, maybe it was the bucolic campus, the laid-back vibes, all that fresh air, seems to have made everyone, Gentile and Jew, a little more chill, as we would say today. They were simply less likely to sweat the small stuff than college students in the big city or on the coasts. Plus, Dartmouth is basically a small college. In fact, Dartmouth alumni to this day take a weird pride in reminding you that their alma mater is Dartmouth College, not university. I mean, unlike Yale or Harvard or Columbia, they have no law school, which means no future law weenies stressing everyone out. There's no reminder there of the outside world. You are free as an undergrad to ski, drink, and hacky sack your years away. So the campus culture helped Jewish students brush off any unpleasantness they might encounter. Like the time our friend Stephen Geller was dragooned by one of his friends into going to some fraternity rush parties. At one of the parties, a frat brother immediately disliked him. My friend said, there's this guy in the fraternity who really hates you. And I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, you talked to him for five minutes and... He hates you, and he said, because you're Jewish. And I started laughing. I said, oh, come on. He said, I'm serious. It was very undartmouthy, and I was surprised. And so the next day, I went back, and I called him on it. Hey, I hear you don't like me because I'm a Jew. What, what's your problem? What happened to you? What did a Jew ever do to you? How, where are you from? How many Jews do you know? Oh, well, I want to know what this is about. And he said, it's, it's just, the way, and just the way it is. It's just the way. And he was all that kind of thing. He had no answer except his hatred. Here's the deal. If you're listening to this podcast, I know two things about you. You care about learning and you care about Jews. And if you care about both of these things, do we have an amazing podcast for you? It's called Take One, and it's hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz. Every day, we read just one page of the Talmud, a very old book offering some surprisingly modern insights into every aspect of modern life. Episodes are very short, just six or seven minutes each, and the guests are surprising. You never know when your favorite congressperson or Hollywood actor or NBA star may drop in for a dose of spiritual self-help courtesy of Judaism's foundational ancient text. 
So start your day with a Talmudic shot of inspiration and visit us at tabletmag.com slash take one. Again and again, I talked to Jews who considered the few anti-Semites at their schools not intimidating or loathsome, but ludicrous. Dartmouth did have a few overtly anti-Semitic fraternities, but the Jews' response was to go to other fraternities or to start their own, just as Jews in America started their own country clubs and their own law firms. The way Richard Press remembered it, some fraternities at Dartmouth really were anti-Semitic. The one part of Dartmouth life where Jews truly could be made to feel uncomfortable. There were 14 or 15 fraternities at Dartmouth. Of those fraternities, say about 10 of them were restricted to Jews and, frankly, also Catholics. But uh, did I come across any open anti-Semitism at Dartmouth? No, I didn't. So how did Richard Press know that those fraternities were restricted? They were quite upfront about it. Their excuse, and I use the word excuse, was they wanted to maintain uh, the similarity of friendships that they would have in the communities where they grew up, which were also restricted against Jews. But Press actually didn't care that much. He'd gone to Loomis, a preppy boarding school in Connecticut, and he knew the drill. Those of us, we Jews... (laughs) In those days, particularly Jews who chose to go to preparatory schools or private schools or Ivy League colleges were aware of the restrictions that existed. And we took it as a matter of course. And one of the ways that personally I felt was appropriate to fight it was to branch out and become friendly with those classmates of mine who weren't Jewish and bridge the gaps that existed in our backgrounds so that we become friendly. And those friendships did last. I find the best way to fight it is to go out amongst the population and insinuate yourself and show what positive aspects of your background that you have to bring about to other people who aren't Jewish. Now, Stephen Geller, our friend who confronted the anti-Semitic frat bro, he actually ended up joining a mostly Gentile fraternity. But it did not go well. I joined for like two weeks, and I said, I don't think this is not me. The weekends that you guys spend aren't my kind of weekends. I do not like to be in, you know, the makeout room, which is a basement where you took your date down with like 30 other guys and girls, the lights out, and you made out... Excuse me? You made out in front of all of your friends? Do you see anything wrong with that? No. I said, well, maybe in that respect, I'm too Jewish. Excuse me. But when Geller tried to quit his fraternity to de-pledge, he needed permission from his dean. So I, I left. You know what Dartmouth did? And this is what I'm talking about. I, and they said, well, if you're going to de-pledge, and I said, yes, I'm going to de-pledge. I don't want to do this. If you're going to de-pledge, you have to see the dean. Why? Because you got to. So I went to the dean, and you know what the dean said to me? Catch this. He said, clearly, you're antisocial, Steve. You're very artistic and talented, but you're antisocial. Artistic, talented, antisocial equals Jewish. Okay, so there it is. So you've got to go see the uh, school uh, clinical psychologist, and uh, we've got to get a letter saying that you, you don't have to be in the fraternity. Geller did go see the school psychologist, who after two sessions gave him permission to quit his fraternity. It's hard to imagine now, but in the days before the internet, before the college rankings, before the mass mailings and spam emails that every high school junior gets, a lot of people went off to college without even knowing much about the school they were attending. For Stephen Geller, 
The small town rural setting wasn't the only surprise at Dartmouth. I asked my roommate, where, where do the girls stay? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, the girl students, where do they stay? She says, well, when you have a date, you can put them up. There are various houses that you're given a list of houses they can stay. I said, no, the students. He said, what are you talking about? This is a boys' school. Come on, stop being so stupid. And I, at that point, I've never felt more lonely in my life. My stomach went down. I'm serious, man. My stomach went down to my shoes. I thought, okay, what is this adorable Jewish bongo player doing around these mountains in an all-boys school in this Thornton Wilder village. Students, heterosexual students that is, had to work hard to find romance. Dartmouth did not go co-ed until 1972, so boys had to travel the back roads to women's colleges. Smith and Mount Holyoke down in Western Massachusetts, Wellesley outside of Boston. Some of them dated locals. Some of the Jewish boys at Dartmouth found that dating was the only time at school that they felt like Jews. Here's our pal Geller. My first year, all of my friends got me dates because I didn't know anybody. And they knew girls from all the different schools and would come up on weekends and so on. So they got me dates. And by spring, I said to my friends, why is it every single date that you give me is Jewish? I, I mean, just I'm, 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 not, I'm not knocking them. I'm just very curious that somehow the probability that every girl that you recommended me is going to be coming from the same religion, not background, but the same religion, is really odd. Richard Press had the same experience. As one of the three Jewish members of my fraternity, all my friends, their girlfriends, uh, I, I frankly, I was very popular. I was the social director of the fraternity. All my pals' girlfriends, they thought a great deal of me, and they used to fix me up. Well, they used to fix me up. The only ones they could, would fix me up with were the few Jewish girls that they knew. Stephen Mocked, a member of the class of 1963 who also went on to work in the theater, said that he experienced zero anti-Semitism at Dartmouth. There was only one person who cared at all whom he dated, his mother. Well, my mother was the only one who would call me weekly and say, are you meeting Jewish girls? <laughs> I would say, I'm trying, I'm trying. And, you know, I did over a period of time at Bennington, at Smith, whatever. But nothing really worked out there. And even in stodgy Gentile Hanover, New Hampshire, romance could blossom between people of different faiths. David Shribman told me a poignant story about his Uncle Phil the one who died on a boat in World War II a year after his graduation. Philip Tribman left someone special behind. Philip met one summer in Hanover a girl who fell for him who was not Jewish. Her name was uh, Bertha Lou Logan. When David was a young man, he got curious about this woman his uncle had loved, and he looked her up in her hometown of Lawrence, Kansas. I was in Kansas City once, and I drove there and spent a tearful couple of hours with her in which she talked about how this was a you know blazing love affair, etc. And that my grandparents were reluctant, but essentially eventually open to it. And when Philip died, Bertha Lou moved in with my parents for a year. Stephen Mock was a very secular Jew while at Dartmouth, but actually became more religious later in life. And he now works as a Jewish chaplain in Los Angeles. He remembers Dartmouth as a place where nobody was very religious. Unlike at Yale or Princeton, there wasn't much of a Hillel. And there also wasn't much of a Catholic center, and Protestant chapel was kind of a joke. You know, as a freshman, we all had to go to Rollins Chapel, I think, once a week for some kind of religious ceremony. I know not, I don't even remember what it was. The whole freshman class was asked to go to this 
I guess it was part of a humanitarian uh, class I was taking. I don't know. But I, I got no pressure at all, either to be Jewish or not. Think of how liberating that was. A place where there was no pressure to be Jewish or not. A place where you could forge your own identity, untethered to your ancestry or heritage. There's something bleak about it, but also something glorious. All of the Ivies have a robust tradition of singing and putting on plays, and Dartmouth was no exception. Jews were definitely part of that. Geller acted and danced and directed and wrote. In fact, he would later write the screenplay for the film version of Slaughterhouse-Five. Stephen Macht was also a theater nerd at Dartmouth, and he became a very successful TV and film actor. You might know him from the show Suits. And Richard Press, who ended up spending much of his life running his family's famous preppy clothing business, Jay Press, also produced professional theater. At Dartmouth, he acted and sang, as he was proud to tell me. Give a rouse, give a rouse with a will for the college on the hill. For the lonesome pines above, and there's Dartmouth in town again. Run, girls, run. Dartmouth in town again. Fun, girls, fun. Once Richard Press started singing, he kept going and going. Oh, a song by the fire, past the pipe, past the bowl. Oh, a song by the fire, with a skull, with a skull. Oh, a song by the fire, past the pipe, with a bowl. For the wolf winds are wailing at the Norways, and the Norways are marching at the skulls, and the hearts are marching for the Norways, and the great white cloud walks a wall. That's the Dartmouth, the Hanover Winter Song. We are college guys with bloody bloodshot eyes. Everybody loves us. So do we. Colorful till death with whiskey. Before I left beautiful Hanover, New Hampshire behind, I wanted to hear more about Philip Alvin Shribman, David's uncle, who graduated in 1941 and died on PT-111 in a firefight with a Japanese destroyer on February 2nd, 1943. I wanted to hear the letter that David Shribman had told me about, from his uncle to his dad. Uncle Phil had written it to his younger brother Dick on February 18th, 1942, somewhere in the Pacific. I asked David to read it for me. Dear Dick, it's not very often of late that I get a chance to write you, but I feel like writing now, so I might as well just go ahead. It's growing on me with increasing rapidity that you're about set to go to college. And though I'm one hell of a guy to talk, and though I hate preaching, let me just write this and we'll call it quits. I don't much care where you go to college. Any top school is good as the next. But this I know. No matter where it is, you'll hardly begin to appreciate it till it's all over. It's sad but true. Today I wouldn't trade my four years at Dartmouth for any and everything in the world. I got truly to love that school. If you went to a trade school, you'd have one thing you could do and know, and you'd miss the whole world of beauty. In a liberal arts school, you know nothing and are fitted for nothing when you get out. Yet you'll have a fortune of a broad outlook, of appreciation for people and beauty that money won't buy. You could always learn to be a mechanic or a pill mixer. But it's only when you're of college age that you can learn that life has beauty and fineness. Afterwards, it's all struggle and war, economic if not actual. Don't give up the idea and ideals of a liberal arts school. 
They're too precious, too rare, too important. I'm happy here and doing just what I want. What's right? But well, it's hard to put love into any concrete terms. And if you ask mom and dad, they'll tell you that I really love Dartmouth. One always has to protect the valuable in this world before we can enjoy it. Good luck to you and make the most of what you've got. Most sincerely, always, Phil. That's a remarkable statement, Mark, and I'm sorry to have broken up in the middle of it. But I think that that advice um, has guided my entire life. For Lieutenant Philip Alvin Shribman, Dartmouth was a place to be Jewish and American. He loved the school without reservation. And one can safely imagine that if he had not been cut down by Japanese gunfire in the Pacific, he would have been among the most loyal Dartmouth alumni. Which makes it especially painful to remember that when he was at Dartmouth, there were still quotas keeping Jews out, ensuring that not too many Philip Alvin Shribmans could matriculate in the freshman class. Those quotas persisted at many Ivy League schools well into the 1960s. The United States was sending soldiers to Vietnam before the Ivy League was really, truly treating Jewish applicants fairly. So what made these Ivy League schools, which were so committed to their anti-Semitic policies, finally change their ways? That is the question we'll take up next time in Gatecrashers Episode 4, Yale and the Slow Death of Quotas. Gatecrashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibowitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Leon Crame is our research assistant. Special thanks to Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sara Fredman-Ader, and Darone Rousquet of Tablet Studios. Alana Newhouse, Morty Landown, Wayne Hoffman, Samantha Hacker, Kurt Hoffman, and all the staff at Tablet Magazine. And Christine Ragassa and Megan Larson, Seth Higgins, Cody Fitzpatrick, and Peter Fox. That Jews Don't Camp song you heard? It was by Dave Buskin. Traditional Dartmouth music by the 1923 Dartmouth Glee Club. We edited down Phil Shribman's letter to his brother Dick, as read by David Shribman, to read the whole letter go find the book Miraculously Builded in Our Hearts, A Dartmouth Reader, edited by David Shribman and Edward Connery Latham. Please go rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed this series, tell a friend. Do you have a story you want to share about being Jewish at Dartmouth or in the Ivy League? You can write to us at gatecrashers at tabletmag.com or leave us a voice memo at 917-310-0456. That's 917-310-0456. Remember to tell us your name and how we can get in touch with you. For more information about this show, go to tabletmag.com slash gatecrashers. And for more podcasts from Tablet Studios, visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Rah, rah, rah. 
singing and dancing and studiously romancing. But to academic academics, we're immune. As students, we admit we're slightly out of fit. But you can get an A in any way if you remember to write in pen. That's the reason we are college men. That was 65 years later. Bravo. I'll take it. Bravo.